Rising. We have another great show planned for you today, of course. Take it away, Brianna. Well, Robbie, the think tank leader who claims to have given the FBI information about Hunter Biden's criminal wrongdoings has been arrested on charges of being an unregistered agent of China. Prosecutors also accused Dr. Gao Luft of brokering illicit arms deals to sell weapons to Libya, the United Arab Emirates, and Kenya. On Monday, the U.S. Attorney's Office released the indictment against the U.S.-Israeli dual citizen who was arrested in Cyprus in February on charges of willfully failing to register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, or FARA, arms trafficking, Iranian sanctions violations, and making false statements to federal agents. In a video obtained by the New York Post, Luft says the U.S. government arrested him to stop his testimony before the House Oversight Committee. Let's watch. I who volunteer to inform the U.S. government about potential security breach and about compromising information about a man vying to be the next president. I'm now being hunted by the very same people whom I informed and may have to live on the run for the rest of my life. Senator Ron Johnson defended Luft during a Fox News appearance. Let's watch. He's got a wealth of information, but they never followed up on that meeting. Instead, they arrested him in Cyprus to silence him. They could have gone to Israel. He resides in Israel. We have extradition treaties, but they instead arrest him in Cyprus. Now, he, he's literally fleeing for his life right now. He, he's, he's on the run. Uh, he's an important witness. He needs to be granted immunity to be able to testify and tell his story. Left could face up to 100 years in prison if he's convicted of the eight counts against him, of which he has denied to the New York Post. Uh, that's unlikely that he would be—that's uh, if he got sure. the maximum sentences and they weren't uh, concurrent at all. This, but, yeah. um, look, this raises my—I have some skepticism. Uh, uh -huh. I, I think people like Ron Johnson might, being a little, might be being a little credulous of this figure. Um, it seems convenient to me that he would have, you know, he, he, these are very serious things he's been charged with, yeah. are, are, you know, potentially arms trafficking. These are, these are things involving foreign adversaries of ours. What is he doing on behalf of China? What is he doing on behalf of Iran? Um, th these are serious matters that he, he's essentially an international fugitive, and he is saying, oh, but I have information on Hunter Biden, so I should have immunity, so we, it should all be waved away. Um, that's like, okay, I could go out, commit a bunch of crimes and say, wait, you can't arrest me because I know all about Hunter Biden. And every Republican would go, yeah, 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 with you, this is an important key witness. Like, if he does have information, we, we would like to hear it. And I think it's perfectly, it would be perfectly fine for the Justice Department. They should s structure some deal for him contingent on him supplying actually valid info that leads to some uh, that is helpful to an investigation into Hunter Biden. We want to structure it that he's going to get time off or he's going to get house arrest or something that if he actually has the information, absolutely, let's make that happen. But that's not what I'm hearing. What I'm hearing is I want to totally get off. I'm, I'm being hunted and I should get off because I have information. I won't say what information I have. It seems unlikely to me. No? Yeah. Well, he not only has claim that he has information about the Biden crime family, but the kinds of things that he has been accused of are exactly the kind of inappropriate foreign interference that is sort of being alleged about the Bidens, which is both ironic right. and I think goes to his credibility. Certainly it is possible, it is possible that he, like many other people on the planet, might have some information about inappropriate behavior from the Bidens, but the timing of this 
and the 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 way that it is exploiting some genuine concerns about the weapon weaponization of the government and uh, federal prosecutors feels um, it it feels. Like we're Suspicious. being taken for a ride. I mean, exactly. look, it would not be, you know, if he was trying to broker, he was doing influence peddling, which is also what Hunter Biden has been accused exactly. of, with um, China or Eastern Europe or wherever it was, and Hunter Biden was doing that, and he has knowledge of Hunter Biden's actions. It would be um, normal operating procedure for a, a prosecuting entity within the U.S. government to say, okay, well, we're really after Hunter Biden because he's the more um, socially significant, politically significant figure. So, you know, what what can you testify to against right. him? And then will and then will you flip on him? That kind of thing. So that, that you know, if that opportunity is there and they're not doing that, that would be suspicious. But, but there's just no evidence that there's under any that he actually has anything. Yeah, and in e the first even, place, even if there were some kind of deal cut. It wouldn't absolve him of what sound like incredibly serious crimes. Well, Weapon sales to uh, what was it? Uh, Kenya and China and the United Arab Emirates. I, I mean, adding as a, I mean, these are serious. It, these, well, I mean, they are these serious, are, but, but the, these are crimes that have well, a concurrent. What was it? A hundred-year life sentence. It won't be well, anywhere close to that. Okay, but, but still, that's a, those well, are substantial that that crimes. Doesn't. So even if it were mediated down to a much lower level. This isn't a situation where the guy gets to go scot-free and live his life because he had what exactly kind of information about Hunter Biden? And the fact that he is offering this up in this context, as opposed to over the last, you know, two and a half years that Joe Biden has been president, also indicates that there's not a lot of, you know, civic, there's, this doesn't sure. seem like a patriotic need for this guy to let us know well, what's going on with the president of the United States. Uh, that, it seems self-serving, and therefore I'm skeptical about the veracity of I'm what his claims are. I'm skeptical, too, because I agree that it seems self-serving. I mean, if they, they can make it sound scarier and more nefarious than it actually is. It could be all of these contacts he's had with foreign entities were would have been allowed and appropriate. He just needed to register at, under the the FARA statute. Sure. Um, it could, again, part of it is, is misleading investigators, which is the easiest crime to commit because the investigators, if they don't like the way you talk to them, will charge you with that. Um, so I, you know, if they if they want to make it look really, you know, the, the duration of the potential sentence, right? Every, yeah, every federal charge carries a gazillion years in prison. So okay. it, it can. It, there's there's misleading federal prosecutors, and then there's arms sales. There's illegal arms sales. Right. Well, I mean, it's not proven. It's they're alleged. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And we'll figure out what happens as the uh, prosecution well, yeah, I don't, moves but I, forward. I mean, I'm trying to be in the middle here. I, I I'm not going to just wholesale accept what the U.S. government is telling me about this individual. Sure. Um, which be a could child. be totally inflated. Could be it, it could be everything he's saying is true, and they're out to get him, and he does have information. I just don't see any underlying that. That's one theory. Another theory. That's the Republican theory. Um, the other theory being he's kind of a crook and he was doing all sorts of bad stuff and they're totally legitimate to go after him and he doesn't really have any information about Hunter Biden. I, do I don't know how one can, I mean, one is, I, you know, is just preferring one explanation to the other. It's just guesswork. I don't know. Sure. I do think that at a certain point there has to be some responsibility of, of vetting claims even just a little bit before there is this rush to believe what might be true because mm -hmm. there are sometimes conspiracies. I'm very open to 
arguments that the government behaves poorly, conspiratorially, um, illegally. Uh, that has been proven over and over again. But at a certain point, I, I do wonder if conservatives who are very much leaning in to arguments about the weaponization of the federal government are going to encounter a boy cries wolf wall. Yeah. There are much stronger claims to be made. I think there's probably some legitimacy. It would be impossible for there not to be some legitimacy to the argument that the Biden administration has made some effort to you know, grease the runway for Hunter Biden's criminal misconduct, right? It would be it would be almost negligent from a parental perspective for him not to try to do what he could. I'm not saying it's appropriate or right, but like it, it's very plausible mm -hmm. to believe that even if he didn't violate the law, there's something called prosecutorial discretion, and it seems reasonable to make the argument that that um, Hunter Biden is not being held to the same standard as other individuals who have violated the laws that he has violated. That, I think they're on safe ground. I think it is obvious that the very nature of bringing charges against a former president are political, and that choices are being made there, given all of the other people like Mike Pence and Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden himself, who have committed the same sorts of document crimes that Donald Trump is now being charged with. I think that's a solid case, stay there. But when you're getting into this realm where you're taking characters that seem kind of shifty and not especially credible, uh, like Gal Luft, and wrapping them in the same protective arguments that are being applied to these other figures in much more credible contexts, I do worry at a certain point that you're, 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 you're undermining your own claims. And I wonder if there's a conservative audience that eventually is going to be exhausted by living in a cloak of conspiracies. Well, sure. I'm, but I'm just saying, but the Justice Department prosecutors rely on evidence and testimony from shifty characters in order sure. to get bigger fish all the time. So sure. if they were not, if they were specifically not doing it in this case, that would tell you something. But again, that's a might hypothetical because we don't know that he actually does know anything. Might the thing that I'd be telling you is that there's not much there. Or there's not anything there. It could be because there's not anything there, or it could be because it's politicized and there are it, they're trying just, to protect But think about the posture. We just, don't know just, either way. Just for a second, if he believes he's being prosecuted, persecuted, prosecuted, and persecuted because of information that he has with respect to Joe Biden, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, that to me is an argument that he should reveal that information. So that he's no longer the threat. If that if it's out there, then well, no, no. He's. I mean, what he's saying is he'll reveal that information for an immunity. Deal. Right, but that's not typically. If but that's the, that's incompatible with his argument that the justice system is biased toward Joe Biden and doesn't want to charge him or his son or anybody else in his family with anything. If you believe you're dealing with a biased justice system, why on earth would you think that they are any are interested in information that you have to go after the guy that you think they're biased in favor of? What you would want to do is insulate yourself from persecution, which is what he's arguing now, that he's being attacked and jailed because he has information that well, is inconvenient to the Biden administration. You would want to get it out there in the open so that, one, there is no longer any incentive to shut you up. That's what he's claiming, that they're trying to silence me because I have information on the Biden crime family. Like, that, that's his argument. So to me, that's inconsistent with, this, with, the, with the idea that the, the Justice Department is here to protect Biden. Of course, if, if it's what they are arguing and the Biden, if the Justice Department is biased, why would you expect them to go out of their way to make a deal with you to get the guy that you think that they're protecting? Do you know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, he's, he's going public so that he gets some political protection from the anti-Biden forces that might 
now that now that it's, now that it's in the open, now that it's known that he has something from his perspective, the prosecutors will be forced to actually acknowledge this reality. That seems uh, deeply naive to me, and that if he really wants political pr protection and for people to take him seriously, given the charges that are against him and his own incentives— But that's—obviously not. If he actually has some information, which, I'm, again, I am not saying that he does, but if he actually has it, he should not reveal it until he gets a immunity deal. Yeah, my my argument is that why would they give you an immunity deal? If you believe that the, the prosecutors yeah. are biased for Joe Biden, why would they, they why would they protect you? Why would they lessen your sentence to go after a guy that you think they want to protect? All right, he's pointing out that they're not going to do that. So, so he's then he should go public. The fire on right. Them. So then his argument should be protecting himself by going public. Well, but because that, that's but what insulates him. Maxim him because still maximizing going to the perception that he's being prosecuted on a political basis is what offers him protection, not a plea deal that he's never going to get from a disinterested prosecutor in his own framing. The alternative is that the the, the DA's the prosecutor's offices are fair, that they're absolutely willing to go against Joe Biden, that they are happy to take any information that he has and cut him a deal. In which case. He has to let go, and, and these conservatives have to let go of the argument that there's all this bias here. I don't think this is inconsistent at all. He, from his standpoint, and again, I don't, I'm not suggesting that he actually knows anything or actually has any information. From his standpoint, it was um, they were coming after him, even though he could flip and have information about Hunter Biden, and it became clear that uh, they're they're not actually interested in that. So then he has to publicly proclaim. This, look, I have information on Hunter Biden that they're not interested, interested in hearing, in hopes that now that that is public knowledge, they're like they're not they're not trying to like hunt him down and kill him, but now they have to go. Oh, well, he, now he's made this a public thing. That's a little bit we of have the to pursue the the the, the why did they arrest him in uh, Croatia? Yeah. Well, I mean, he Greece? said he suggest, he's explicitly said it's because he was going to testify before some committee. So that seems like an easy factual matter to clear up. Was he actually invited to testify before? Um, well. Well, no, I'm saying why would the 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 insinuation seemed to be that they arrested him in in I mean, Crete as opposed to Israel because in Cyprus, so something yeah. sorry in Cyprus because it's it's somehow coercive. It's they're trying to well, get Ron him. Johnson they would have to go around the law. Asked, we they're threatening the him. Israel, Israeli government right. turn him over because we have extradition with him. Although I don't, that doesn't necessarily mean that they would have turned. Right, him but what's over. the implication there? So why why? Yeah, I, I, I'm just saying that there, there's a lot of insinuation that if you follow the thread, is deeply contradict, not contradictory to everything else that's being said here. That, that's all, and hopefully we'll, we'll get the truth soon. There's hopefully ample opportunities for him to say his truth. Well, Insider has reached out to Christopher Clark, a lawyer for Hunter Biden, who did not immediately respond to a request for comment on the matter. More rising right after this. CNN journalist Caitlin Collins' new 9 p.m. show premiered last night, where Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville joined as a guest, and the two got into a debate about white nationalism. Let's watch. You agree that white nationalists should not be serving in the U.S. military. Is that what you're saying? If, if people think that a white nationalist is a racist, I agree with that. I agree they should A white shouldn't. nationalist is someone who believes that the white race is superior to other races. Well, that, that's some people's opinion. Uh, and I don't think, That's I mean, a lot, uh, pardon? What's your opinion? My opinion of a white nationalist, if somebody wants to call him white nationalist, to me is an American. It's an American. Now, if that 
white nationalists is a racist, I'm totally against anything that they want to do because I am 110% against racism. But I want somebody that's in our military, that's strong, that believes in this country, that's an American, that will fight along anybody, whether it's a man or woman, black or white, red, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, and, and so I'm a totally against identity politics. I think it's ruining this country. A believe white in different things. is racist, Senator. Well, th that's your opinion. That was a, a frustrating issue. Look, um, what, what Caitlin Collins, and she does come out explicitly there and say at the end, to be a white nationalist explicitly is just defined as being racist. And he's trying to say, well, that's like your definition of it or something. But that right. is just, I mean, you can be a little bit pedantic with what she said there because I think technically the belief that um, white people are superior to other people is actually not white nationalism, but white supremacy. white supremacy. White nationalism is thinking there should be a different, white nationalists think there should be a country for just white people and a country for just black people and a country for just Jewish people and so on and so forth. You could technically think that all the races are equally good. They should just not intermingle or live in the same sure. place. That would still be racist because you would think that, um, that people should be treated differently in accordance with their race. That's explicitly what being racist means. So if you are a white nationalist, you are by default racist because you think people should be treated differently according to their race. That's just like right. the definition of it. So it's right. frustrating to, 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 for him to like, because he'll say, well, yeah, I'm totally against racism and say, well, she'll say she, rightly that white nationalism is a form of racism. It's not white supremacy. It's still pretty bad. Yeah. And so I, I don't, I think what's worth, what's, why are we fighting, what's, what's worth fighting about that's over very, this? That's very well said, Robbie. That's a very good question. Why are we fighting about this? Why yeah. is that a difficult thing for him to acknowledge? It's a little bit of a hit dog will holler situation, it seems. If you're not a racist, why defend this term white nationalism? This, this came up a little bit with some of the, what with the, mm -hmm. the Tim Pool and the, the Texas shooter where, well, if you're not, you don't approve of shooting people, just disclaim the people who do things in your name and keep it pushing. Mm -hmm. It's not actually your fault that someone pulled the trigger on someone else. But why, when you start to defend folks, then there starts to be, it starts to raise some questions about whether or not you do share their ideology. So Merriam-Webster's definition of white nationalist is one of a group of militant white people who espouse white supremacy and advocate enforced racial segregation. That's one definition. Now, it is true, as you pointed out, that technically white nationalism technically could just mean a kind of separate be equal and not a, sure. a supremacy argument. But what is also known is that explicitly white supremacist groups have moved to the term white nationalism pr precisely because it provides them a little bit of cover in a world where most of us today recognize that white supremacy and racism are wrong and things that we don't want to personally adopt. And that's what's so interesting. I know there's been this discourse about CRT and why we don't want to teach about race in schools, but the argument that folks that advocate for learning about the history of race in this country in particular is to learn about things like this, to learn about how we have, over the course of the hundreds of years of American history, the hundreds of years of existence of white and black people in this country, there have been a shift of terms and ideas that are used to characterize hierarchies that have changed over time as norms have evolved. And for those people who are aware of that and aware of how we shifted from, you know, you know, more explicitly bigoted terms to ones that are, shall we say, dog whistles, it's obvious what's going on here. But it's not obvious to him. And it's, there's some question as to whether or not he is playing dumb 
or if he actually is genuinely ignorant about what he's saying. Could he be both? It, it could <laughs> he be. He doesn't sound very well informed about this. And I think, it would, again, for a U.S. senator, I, I think it would be ben It's just, I, it's not good tactically. I don't, I mean, it, he must, many Republicans, many Republican elected officials, many conservative thinkers um, don't enjoy being accused of, like, playing footsie with racism because, uh, and so I think often don't. those accusations aren't fair, but this kind of defense will invite those sorts of accusations. I mean, one other interesting so, part of this was I that when pushed, he says, it's just an American. I think a white nationalist is just an American. Right. And I have even a harder time understanding what that could possibly mean. Because I got to tell you, Robbie, I'm American, mm -hmm. and my parents were American, and my grandparents were American, and my great-grandparents were American, and my great-great-grandparents were American, and my great-great-great-grandparents right. were American. Um, and so I am also not white. Right. I don't know, am I a white nationalist? I, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in that sense, he was almost confusing the term white nationalist with just nationalist <laughs> or just patriot or something. And you can kind of see how you can get there if you, if you believe that America should be a white majority and that white cultural identity, whatever that means, because there's a, a zillion well, right, different that, that's kinds of white so people that integrated here. That doesn't even, I mean, you know, in the era of very, um, you know, a hundred years ago, during segregation of, of you know, the, the Ku Klux Klan, et cetera, the kind of whiteness that they were, you know, that's white Anglo-Saxon Protestant type of, you know, I'm, I'm descended of, I'm Catholic Italian immigrants, some German, some Slavic, like that would not have been, my ancestors weren't considered white. Right, no, they that, weren't. Like that was, was, these were different ethnic groups. It's only till very recently there's been some, you know, consideration, well, I guess everybody in the European is now, yeah, is now white, but that's not at all how it was. Exactly, and there's a great deal of research about that from a sociological yeah. perspective. There's a great book about like how Americans became white that people who are interested in understanding more and not banning that kind of research mm -hmm. would could behoove themselves could would behoove themselves to to take a look at, but if you follow, it, it it seems like the only way that I can understand what he's saying is that he believes in white nationalism insofar as that means that I believe that white culture again whatever that is given the diversity of white immigrants in this mm -hmm. country should be a, a ethnic and cultural majority and that white American culture should be dominant. Um, and that you should maintain that, and that wanting to maintain that core essence of America, presuming that you believe that is the core essence of America, is white nationalism, then I guess you can say, okay, you can be not racist but want America to stay the way it is. But that is confusing for someone, again, sorry right. to be inconvenient here, but like myself, who thinks that, well, American is, uh, jazz is the original American art form. Right. Is that a white art form? Uh, you know, I, I don't, you know, black Americans used to be closer to 20% of Americans' population before all of these European immigrants were allowed to come here. Should we have maintained the original form of America with more black people as a proportion of the population? Or, you know, should, should right. have former slaves have been picketing saying in the early 1800s, <laughs> these white people are diluting our, 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 our population share. Keep these white immigrants right. out. Right. You know, and then, but again, again, those immigrants weren't included as white. <laughs> have you ever seen the movie, um, what is it called, The Good Shepherd? I haven't. Um, it's a great movie about, um, uh, it's Matt Damon. Um, about the founding of the CIA, it's I mean it's hmm. it's not totally historically accurate. It's like a spy movie, um, but so but it you know it takes place in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, 
and, um, and Matt Damon's character is is like just founding the CIA, and um, and he's meeting with um, with uh, I think it's Joe Pecci, the actor Joe mm -hmm. Pecci is playing this Italian mobster who they're. Trying, you know, the government's trying to work with. He's like an asset, and he says, um, he, like, he encapsulates his whole philosophy. He says, he's trying to Matt Damon's character, and he says, "What do, what do you people actually have? We, the Italians, we have the church and our families. Um, the Jews have their traditions. The the Irish have their homeland. The blacks have their music. What you people have nothing." And Matt Damon says. We have this entire country. This country is ours. The rest of you are just visiting here. <laughs> but the, the us in that is not all white people. It's not Jewish people. It's not Italians. It's not. It's just wasps. Yeah. Um, which shows how that, like, that was the thinking of, of again, of like a white nationalist mindset back in the day. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. let's just not use this term. I don't know why. It's not worth rehabilitating or saving. It's not. It's yeah. not like even inclusive of just like. The white people in the military, yeah. which is, I guess, what and, this is and about. And also, maybe we should interrogate who is being benefited by creating these groups that are malleable, as you've just described, mm -hmm. but which create kind of these false factions within our society where some people are in-group and some people are out-group. Who is benefited by the constant pressure to keep doing that and reconfigure right. those orientations? I would argue that it is some version of that waspy elite. They don't have, it doesn't have to be an ethnic, ethnically mm -hmm. described, but they, there keeps being shifts to make, maintain this very small, shall we say 1%, the fraction yeah. of, a, of a society that is able to use the perception of difference to make people feel like they should maybe support policies that don't adv advantage everybody else, to, uh, you know, go into wars where the army is disproportionately, frankly, non-white because it is disproportionately poor and working class, and think about whether or not we want to buy into that sort of framing or push back so that we can have a more equal country. Mm. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Almost every corner of the country, Axios Phoenix reported Arizona's capital is set to break its 18-day streak for the longest heat wave on record. Florida is also facing record-crushing heat, causing an uptick in its ocean temperatures, reaching 92 to 96 degrees in the Florida Keys, according to the Washington Post. While some places are under a heat wave, flood alerts have been issued to over 9 million people in the northeast of the United States as heavy rain continues to pelt the region. Devastating flash flooding has left behind death and destruction, with at least one death being reported. News Nation correspondent Sloan Glass is here with us to discuss. Welcome, Sloan. Where are you? I am in Sandy Point, New York, and I just wanted to show you guys an example of how high the waters rose here by showing you a tree that went under this bridge. And I know that I'm on Zoom and that the connection is a little unstable, but I hope you can see that, that tree and just how many feet the water rose that it was able to go down this brook far enough that it could get long, excuse me, um, that it could get stuck under that bridge. Mm. And you can just see how large that tree is to get lodged in that position is pretty remarkable. I also want to show you both our proximity to this park that was completely flooded yesterday. They've been doing repairs all morning long. And I talked to a resident who told me that there were people enjoying a picnic in this park and that they said it was like a tsunami, just waters coming in. And 
You know, this is something that they said would happen once every 100 years. And now we're hearing from officials this will be a once every 19 year event. And we're only an hour and 15 minutes outside of New York City. I'm in Sandy Point, New York. And the worst of these, uh, the floods are happening all across the Northeast in Vermont, in New Hampshire. Right now, things are really looking up in New York, but Vermont is still going to get rain and they are preparing for some real damage ahead. Yeah, I saw some pretty devastating uh, imagery from the Hudson Valley area, entire roads being wiped out in a context that we're not really used to seeing, you know, northeastern flooding that is having that kind of effect on infrastructure. That combined with the story about the record heat wave that we've experienced this month. I mean, what do the scientists say? Is there, is this seem to, seeming to be more evidence that these are trends that are going to be increasing over time? Is there pushback about this being just kind of sporadic? Uh, and is there any response to what's going to go on from an infrastructure perspective? Because these are pretty devastating uh, effects that municipalities are going to have to contend with. Right. I mean, there are roads that have been completely wrecked or wiped away, and some residents are just unable to get to their homes. I know that when we were trying to get to this area, every single path that we took was constantly changing, even trying to get to where the Red Cross had set up some relief centers and been in contact with Governor Hochul's office. They couldn't tell us the path to go to to get to those relief centers because it was constantly changing because the roads were getting shut down. There were so many detours and it was just an ever evolving situation. I spoke with a woman whose son called her and said, mom, I can't get to our house. Mm -hmm. He had to park his car. And then she was telling me that she had friends who were boating across to their homes. No one had electricity. And, and it is a really remarkable event to see in New York. And, and we've spoken about the fact that this is not something that you would expect in this area. As, as far as what science will be you know we're hearing that this will now take place a lot more often than what we're used to both of you spoke about this heat wave that we're experiencing but it is really scary to see uh, what are people in the area saying about um the the government response are they are they frustrated are they they feel their um needs are being met in this emergency Everyone that I've spoken to has been very optimistic. I think that they're very happy. I know even from seeing this morning being here at a huge improvement in this park. It was, look, there's one thing to be said just about Mother Nature doing her work. The air is getting a lot drier. It's sunny, so the mud is going to be a lot drier and, and the roads are going to be better for drivers but also there were workers out here helping and moving really really quickly i i amtrak is still having some problems trains are still having some problems but those things take time and i do think that people are are being patient and understand that this was not something that was expected yeah, I, I'm reading that uh, Governor uh, Hochul said she spoke to FEMA and that, has, uh, that she's offered all the help necessary uh, and that Chuck Schumer and Senator Gillibrand announced midday on Monday that they were seeking major disaster declaration from the state uh, from the uh, FEMA. So it does seem like resources are being mobilized. New York is a state that doesn't have some of the uh, financial issues that we see when there are disasters in 
like let's say the southeast or some of the the states that have a little bit more of a funding squeeze. And of course, Joe Biden has been traveling around the country um, to places where there's uh, evidence of his infrastructure dollars uh, going into effect uh, from the uh, infrastructure bill. You know, claiming credit for having uh, offered political resources to address what has been a long-standing problem with crumbling American infrastructure. And I am curious whether or not um, these escalating crises will help to generate more consensus next time there, there's more infrastructure uh, spending proposed instead of the kind of bipartisan fighting, infighting that, that happens around these things, which seem very common sense, uh, sensically needed by so many Americans. But thank you so much for, for joining us. We really appreciate your on-the-ground coverage today. Thank you for having me. Former Fox News host Tucker Carlson will host a Republican presidential primary forum with five GOP candidates this Friday. That's according to Blaze Media. The forum will reportedly not include former president and current 2024 nominee Donald Trump. The event will, however, feature Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, former Vice President Mike Penn, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. It will be held at the Family Leadership Summit in Des Moines, Iowa. So Tucker's kind of a free agent at the moment. He is, uh, he is able to uh, host this debate, which will not include Trump, but uh, does include several of the other, um, obviously much more distant after DeSantis, DeSantis polling like 20% or something, and then these people um, with um, much less support. But, yeah. um, but, you know, just as I think it's important for the Democratic side to actually do debates, to actually have Biden confront Marianne Williamson, RFK Jr., and anyone else who happens to be in the race uh, at that point, um, so too should the GOP have an actual debate with its many, many candidates. Yeah, so. I think that's smart. Just because Donald Trump might not want there to be a primary mm -hmm. or uh, Joe Biden might not want there to be a primary doesn't mean that the rest of the candidates have to uh, fall in line or that the party itself has to fall in line. So there are obvious incentives you know, that explain why uh, Trump and Biden wouldn't want to jeopardize their forerunner stat status. I mean, Trump isn't just ahead of the rest of the pack by, whatever, 70, 80 points. Um, he's ahead of Ron DeSantis in Florida by 20 points, according to the most recent poll from, I believe, yesterday. So yeah. when you're crushing the game like this, there's no reason necessarily to want to undermine yourself by having some faux pas or gaffe in the context of a head-to-head -head matchup with your opponents, at least not at this stage. However, I think that it creates energy in the party. It brings attention to potential fresh blood and newcomers in subsequent election cycles to have events like this. And given the prominence of somebody like Tucker Carlson, I think this is a really smart way to go about it. Now, I'm curious, do you think this is some reflection of the relationship between Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson potentially souring or some in some way. Do you wish, you know, from from, mm -hmm. from Trump's standpoint, arguably you would prefer that none of these people get the platform that Tucker is offering them right now? Do you think we can read into that at all? Uh, I, I see what you're getting at. Uh, Tucker obviously said recently in this interview with Russell Brand just last Friday that he thinks Trump's great. He loves Trump. He said he doesn't know whether he'll be a good president or will win or not make any like political predictions, yeah. but that he really appreciates what Trump has done, particularly on foreign policy. It 
sounds like my understanding is the relationship between Tucker and Trump is pretty good in general. Um, I think I think Trump respects Tucker, honestly, is the way it comes across. Um, Tucker famously went at the very beginning of COVID, right? He flew to Mar-a-Lago to meet with Trump to, to urge him to take uh, the pandemic more seriously at the very beginning, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of funny in hindsight. But, uh, but I, I don't think, you know, Tucker, okay, he likes a lot of Trump's ideas. I don't think he feels, I don't think it's, I don't think he feels sycophantic about it, that like he's not going to do, he's not going to take this opportunity to host an important debate just because maybe Trump wouldn't like it. He doesn't seem quite so, like he's called out Trump on his show for foreign policy related reasons when he disagreed with him. Sure. But we also know from the Dominion lawsuit, of course, that, you know, he was he was texting Mm -hmm. about how happy he was that we are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I can't I truly can't wait that he was um, um, critical of his first term, saying we're all pretending we've got a lot to show for it because admitting what a disaster has been is too tough to digest. But come on, there really isn't an upside to Trump. He denigrated his business abilities, um, saying that Trump's talent is to, quote, destroy things. He could easily destroy us if we play it play it wrong. And that so much of the what we learned from the Dominion lawsuit was that he was frustrated right. with Fox News for having to run cover for Trump at the same time that he himself was critical of his colleagues who said honest and openly critical things about Trump. So he's been in this limbo for some time where he's had to kind of have a public-facing view and a private-facing view. And I'm really curious to see how that continues to evolve now that he's not constrained in any way by what by what Fox News wanted of him. Right. But he is still constrained by the thing that constrained Fox News, which is that most conservatives who are Trump, who are his audience do still have very fond feelings about Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know. I'm I'm not the guy. I don't know what his genuine feelings are. I gather that he does appreciate Trump's foreign policy and is frustrated in the ways maybe that Trump has sabotaged himself. Uh, I mean, I, I would ag- agree with a lot of the criticisms he just made there, even though Trump's instincts on Iraq and Ukraine have been um, have been good. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of times with Trump, there's just not the right follow through. Or there's the appointment of people who are totally contrary to the policy or there's the, you know, the unforced errors the the boxes of documents type things. Sure. Uh, but anyway, regarding the debate, I'm interested to see, you know, what Tucker focuses on, obviously. Um, is he going to focus on foreign policy? Is he going to drill down on some of these profound differences between uh, between a, a Nikki Haley and uh, and theoretically a Ron DeSantis? We've got to know more about what his sure. foreign policies views actually are, um, you know, where he, uh, how much he asks about, um, about wokeness, about those kinds of things. Um, I, look, there's no one, you know, love him or hate him, there's really few people in the conservative media world who are as um, discerning of these intellectual differences in the party. So I think he's, the, he's a great person to actually host this. Yeah, I, I'd agree, especially just because People will tune in. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about whether or not, you know, the left, the Democrats could similarly have a, a debate that would allow these candidates to have a similar kind of platform and let the American public, who's largely being gaslit about there being <laughs> any options at all outside of uh, Joe Biden, to see who is actually in the race. And I think it does come down to, since none of the legacy media shows are going to likely host something like that. Is there a similar figure that is 
generally broadly right. left-leaning, who could host something like that, I don't know, a Glenn Greenwald type or something like that, presuming that they wouldn't be willing to come to an independent show like ours to host this sort of debate. It is worth noting that not everybody who is running in the Republican field has been invited to this. It seems Did notably— they have some kind of cutoff for numbers? Uh, uh, unclear. I mean, the, the, the notable admission, it seems um, to me— Christie? Is Chris Christie, yeah. who gets a huge platform from the liberal media, who have adored him in the never Trump style for a long well, time. Well, there's now. been some kind of uh, this might be uh, there's some kind of controversy over like you're not allowed to participate in the debates unless you agree to support whoever the nominee will be. Um, and and I, I think Christie has said well, he's not going to support the nominee if it's Trump. Otherwise, yes, but not Trump. And that might be—I don't know if that's the, the difference or why he's not on this list or it has to do with his poll numbers, but I, that has—I've seen that come up in other places. Yeah, like, are you willing yeah. to say you'll vote—you know, sign the pledge that you'll vote for the person so you can participate in the, in the Republican, the GOP-sanctioned official debates? Right. I mean, that's going to be an issue, as I understand it, with respect to— uh, Donald it's Trump as with well. Trump, yeah. and it's like, I'm not, I'm not supporting whoever. It's me I'm supporting. <laughs> right. And there's some question about whether or not if Trump were willing to participate in yeah. a debate, which gives it you know, the ultimate legitimacy, they would actually hold him to that. I mean, even if he were to say that he would take the loyalty pledge, do we believe that he is going to follow through? And at this point, right. does it really matter? Is it just performance? So I had my fingers crossed behind my back. <laughs> Right. Oh. <laughs> so uh, this is a, a rundown from about um, a week ago uh, in the New York Times about who has and hasn't taken the loyalty pledge. Donald mm -hmm. Trump, unclear. He has not said whether he will. In February, he refused to commit to supporting the eventual nominee, uh, telling conservative radio host Hugh Hewitt it would have to depend on who the nominee was. Uh, the, that was, but that was before the RNC made the pledge debate requirement. Ron DeSantis, unclear, asked last month whether he would support Trump in a general election. He didn't give a straight answer, saying, you respect the process and you respect people's decisions, but he made no uh, commitment. Uh, Chris Christie has given mixed messages. Uh, as you said, he said, I will do what I need to to be up on that stage. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take the pledge just as seriously as Donald Trump took it in 2016, adding that he considered it useless and that he had told the RNC as much. Trump was also lashing out uh, yesterday at the I Iowa's Republican governor, Kim Reynolds, mm -hmm. for just saying that she's going to be neutral mm -hmm. in the feud between Trump and DeSantis. Mm -hmm. And Trump was like, neutral's not good enough. <laughs> not good enough. <laughs> I did see that. Uh, which, again, puts him at odds with yet another relatively popular Republican governor in a state he needs to win if he is the nominee. Although not, he, he, so didn't, me, he didn't win Iowa in 2016. And it didn't stop him. In 2016, that's right. But he yeah. won it in 2020. I can't even remember. Yeah. I was I was too preoccupied with our own Iowa shenanigans in the Democratic <laughs> primary. More rising right after this. Former Fox News host Tucker Carlson will host a Republican presidential primary forum with five GOP candidates this Friday. That's according to Blaze Media. The forum will reportedly not include former president and current 2024 nominee Donald Trump. The event will, however, feature Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, former Vice President Mike Penn, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. It will be held at the Family Leadership Summit in Des Moines, Iowa.
So Tucker's kind of a free agent at the moment. He is, uh, he is able to uh, host this debate, which will not include Trump, but uh, does include several of the other, um, obviously much more distant after DeSantis. DeSantis polling like 20% or something, and then these people um, with um, much less support. But, yeah. um, but, you know, just as I think it's important for the Democratic side to actually do debates, to actually have Biden confront Marianne Williamson, RFK Jr., and anyone else who happens to be in the race uh, at that point, um, so too should the GOP have an actual debate with its many, many candidates. Yeah, so. I think that's smart. Just because Donald Trump might not want there to be a primary mm -hmm. or uh, Joe Biden might not want there to be a primary doesn't mean that the rest of the candidates have to uh, fall in line or that the party itself has to fall in line. So there are obvious incentives you know, that explain why uh, Trump and Biden wouldn't want to jeopardize their forerunner stat status. I mean, Trump isn't just ahead of the rest of the pack by whatever, 70, 80 points. Um, he's ahead of Ron DeSantis in Florida by 20 points, according to the most recent poll from, I believe, yesterday. So yeah. when you're crushing the game like this, there's no reason necessarily to want to undermine yourself by having some faux pas or gaffe in the context of a head-to-head -head matchup with your opponent, at least not at this stage. However, I think that it creates energy in the party. It brings attention to potential fresh blood and newcomers in subsequent election cycles to have events like this. And given the prominence of somebody like Tucker Carlson, I think this is a really smart way to go about it. Now, I'm curious, do you think this is some reflection of the relationship between Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson potentially souring or some in some way. Do you wish, you know, from from, mm -hmm. from Trump's standpoint, arguably you would prefer that none of these people get the platform that Tucker is offering them right now. Do you think we can read into that at all? Uh, I, I see what you're getting at. Uh, Tucker obviously said recently in this interview with Russell Brand just last Friday that he thinks Trump's great. He loves Trump. He said he doesn't know whether he'll be a good president or will win or not making any like political predictions, yeah. but that he really appreciates what Trump has done, particularly on foreign policy. It sounds like my understanding is the relationship between Tucker and Trump is pretty good in general. Um, I, think, I think Trump respects Tucker, honestly, is the way it comes across. Um, Tucker famously went at the very beginning of COVID, right? He flew to Mar-a-Lago to meet with Trump to, to urge him to take uh, the pandemic more seriously at the very beginning, hmm. um, which is kind of funny in hindsight. But, uh, but I, I don't think, you know, Tucker, okay, he likes a lot of Trump's ideas. I don't think he feels, I don't think it's, I don't think he feels sycophantic about it, that like he's not gonna do, he's not gonna take this opportunity to host an important debate just because maybe Trump wouldn't like it. He doesn't seem quite so, like he's called out Trump on his show for foreign policy related reasons when he disagreed with him. Sure, but we also know from the Dominion lawsuit, of course, that he, you know, he was t he was texting mm -hmm. about how happy he was that we quote are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I can't, I truly can't wait that he was, um, um, critical of his first term, saying, we're all pretending we've got a lot to show for it, because admitting what a disaster has been is too tough to digest, but come on, there really isn't an upside to Trump. He denigrated his business abilities, um, saying that Trump's talent is to, quote, destroy things. He could easily destroy us if we play 
play it wrong, and that so much of the what we learned from the Dominion lawsuit was that he was frustrated right. with Fox News for having to run cover for Trump at the same time that he himself was critical of his colleagues who said honest and openly critical things about Trump. So he's been in this limbo for some time where he's had to kind of have a public-facing view and a private-facing view. And I'm really curious to see how that continues to evolve now that he's not constrained in any way by what by what Fox News wanted of him. Right. But he is still constrained by the thing that constrained Fox News, which is that most conservatives who are Trump, who are his audience do still have very fond feelings about Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not the guy. I don't know what his genuine feelings are. I gather that he does appreciate Trump's foreign policy and is frustrated in the ways maybe that Trump has sabotaged himself. Uh, I mean, I, I would ag agree with a lot of the criticisms he just made there, even though Trump's instincts on Iraq and Ukraine have been, um, have been good. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of times with Trump, there's just not the right follow through. Or there's the appointment of people who are totally contrary to the policy, or there's the, you know, the unforced errors the the boxes of documents type things. Sure. Um, but anyway, regarding the debate, I'm interested to see you know what Tucker focuses on. Obviously, um, is he going to focus on foreign policy? Is he going to drill down on some of these profound differences between uh, between a, a Nikki Haley and uh, and theoretically a Ron DeSantis? We got to know more about what his sure. foreign policies views actually are. Um, you know where he, uh, how much he asks about um, about wokeness, about those kinds of things. Um, I, look, there's no one. You know, love him or hate him. There's really few people in the conservative media world who are as um, discerning of these intellectual differences in the party. So I think he's the he's a great person to actually host this. Yeah, I, I'd agree, especially just because. People will tune in. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about whether or not, you know, the left, the Democrats could similarly have a, a debate that would allow these candidates to have a similar kind of platform and let the American public, who's largely being gaslit about there being <laughs> any options at all outside of uh, Joe Biden, to see who is actually in the race. And I think it does come down to, since none of the legacy media shows are going to likely host something like that, is there a similar figure that is generally broadly right. left-leaning who could host something like that? I don't know, a Glenn Greenwald type or something like that, presuming that they wouldn't be willing to come to an independent show like ours to host this sort of debate. It is worth noting that not everybody who is running in the Republican field has been invited to this. It seems Did notably— they have some kind of cutoff for numbers? Uh, uh, unclear. I mean, the, the, the notable admission, it seems um, to me— Christy? is Chris Christie, yeah. who gets a huge platform from the liberal media, who have adored him in the never-Trump style for a long well, time Well, there's now. been some kind of—this uh, might be—there's uh, some kind of controversy over, like, you're not allowed to participate in the debates unless you agree to support whoever the nominee will be. Um, and and I, I think Christie has said well, he's not going to support the nominee if it's Trump. Otherwise, yes, but not Trump. And that might be—I don't know if that's the, the difference or why he's not on this list or it has to do with his poll numbers, but I, that has—I've seen that come up in other places. Yeah, like, are you willing yeah. to say you, you'll vote—you know, sign the pledge that you'll vote for the person so you can participate in the, in the Republican, the GOP-sanctioned official debates? Right. I mean, that's going to be an issue, as I understand it, with respect to— uh, Donald it's Trump as with well. Trump, yeah. and it's like, I'm not, I'm not supporting whoever. It's me I'm supporting. <laughs> right. And there's some question about whether or not if Trump were willing to participate in yeah. a debate, which gives it you know, the ultimate legitimacy, 
they would actually hold him to that. I mean, even if he were to say that he would take the loyalty pledge, do we believe that he is going to follow through? And at this point, right. does it really matter? Is it just performance? So I had my fingers crossed behind my back. <laughs> right. Oh. <laughs> so uh, this is a, a rundown from about um, a week ago uh, in the New York Times about who has and hasn't taken the loyalty pledge. Donald mm -hmm. Trump, unclear. He has not said whether he will. In February, he refused to commit to supporting the eventual nominee, uh, telling conservative radio host Hugh Hewitt it would have to depend on who the nominee was. Uh, the, that was, but that was before the RNC made the pledge to debate requirement. Ron DeSantis, unclear, asked last month whether he would support Trump in a general election. He didn't give a straight answer, saying, you respect the process and you respect people's decisions, but he made no uh, commitment. Uh, Chris Christie has given mixed messages. Uh, as you said, he said, I will do what I need to to be up on that stage. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take the pledge just as seriously as Donald Trump took it in 2016, adding that he considered it useless and that he had told the RNC as much. Trump was also lashing out uh, yesterday at the I Iowa's Republican governor, Kim Reynolds, mm -hmm. for just saying that she's going to be neutral mm -hmm. in the feud between Trump and DeSantis. Mm -hmm. And Trump was like, neutral's not good enough. <laughs> not good enough. <laughs> I did see that. Uh, which, again, puts him at odds with yet another relatively popular Republican governor in a state he needs to win if he is the nominee. It's Although he, he, so didn't, me, he didn't win Iowa in 2016. And it didn't stop him. In 2016, that's right. But he yeah. won it in 2020. I can't even remember. Yeah. I, was, I was too preoccupied with our own Iowa shenanigans in the Democratic primary. More rising right after this. The ladies of The View weighed in on President Biden's failure to acknowledge his seventh grandchild, Hunter Biden's child out of wedlock, after columnist Maureen Dowd wrote an op-ed published in The New York Times about Biden's laissez-faire approach to Hunter's estranged daughter. Let's watch. It's not the president's baby, so I don't know what you think, but I'm throwing it out. I agree with you completely. It shouldn't have been, uh, it's uh, uh, directed to Joe Biden. It should be directed to Hunter Biden. It's five children, not four, Hunter, because this is not Joe Biden's baby. And I think it's very hard for Joe Biden to be a grandfather to the child if his son is not being a father. He can talk to his child. He can advise Hunter. But look, what is, what is absolutely evident to me is that the right wing and the MAGA world has decided to weaponize Hunter Biden against his dad. I'm sort of split on this because um, I hate this for that child. Um, you're not asked to be brought into the world. Um, you're just a, it's just a circumstance, mm -hmm. you know, and um, apparently this was sort of more of a one night stand. It wasn't like they had a relationship. Mm -hmm. He was in the throes of addiction when this woman became pregnant. Whoopi Goldberg blamed the media and called out Maureen Dowd for penning the piece. Let's take a look. Maureen Dowd should find something else to write about. Yeah, so write about so. something else. I mean, they I, are. I just, about I'm sorry. You know, these things are, for me, when you start talking about people's families and what yeah. they're doing, it's, I, I find it unnecessary. This is not anybody's business. Nobody needed to know about this. No. This is private. And I know people feel like you need to know everything. I'm sorry, you don't. But another co-host of The View, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, wasn't prepared to let Biden off the hook. 
also have estrangement in my family. I can't have a birthday pass or a holiday that I don't think of the phone call I'm not receiving that day. Because you're estranged and from your dad. I'm estranged from my father, and <clears throat> I can't pretend to know what's going on with the child, but I know that someday she will be old enough to read and hear the speeches where he says, my six grandchildren, and just leaves out that there's the seventh. If he could even just change that language to me, that would be enough, because I don't know what's going on behind closed doors, but she will someday be old enough to know that he was choosing to reject her and not acknowledge her as his child. I think Alyssa also pointed out the obvious that if this was Trump, they would be talking about right. it. Look, they would be gleefully talking about it. Yeah, look, Alyssa's obviously right. The, pri the primary relationship is, is obviously Hunter Biden's, and to the extent that the child is resentful or angry or hurt by feeling estranged from her family, obviously the primary source of blame should Hunter, be Hunter. Sure. But to pretend like the senior Bidens aren't also engaging in, in, in offering up some kind of political, political commentary and affirmative distancing from the child when he says things like, I have six grandchildren, and when Jill Biden writes children's books dedicated to her six grand grandchildren, knowing that there's a seventh out there. That seems so deliberate and hurtful. It, why, just why? Just, just say, say my, my grandchildren. grandchildren sure. There's just no need to deliberately purposely exclude her. And, and moreover, uh, I forget which of the women said that, uh, I think it was Sonny, he doesn't really know this woman. It was when he was on a, you know, uh, having a, a drug abuse issues. That's fine. Again, that's not the, the granddaughter's right. fault. And it's not entirely true that he had no relationship with this woman. He put her on the payroll of his consulting firm as a personal assistant while she was pregnant, provided her health insurance until at least up until three months after the child was born. There was some kind of relationship here. Moreover, they've been in a, a year-long custody battle uh, over child support where there's been an agreement for her to get um, some of his paintings, he's now become an, an amateur artist. These paintings, for reasons, are selling for uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Sure. So, and again, in addition to some child support Here, payments— take this painting. You can sell this money. Right. I mean, but that's, that's part of our conversation. And fine, I'm, I'm glad that she's being taken care of in these ways. But there's also been a dispute over, or not, uh, over whether or not she should have the last name Biden. Um, and they, the mother, the family— has agreed to drop the request to have her named Biden, one has to question under what circumstances. Is that part of the monetary settlement that she'll stop pushing to be described as a Biden? But that feels like sure. part of this slight, right? It's not just that, you know, you're technically being taken care of, that, you know, they, they you, you're wanting to be, they're wanting you to be excluded from this sure. family. And that's not just about Hunter Biden, that's about all the Bidens. And it doesn't even seem, I don't, what's the point of it anymore? What are they trying to hide or cover? Like, it's, it's not, it should not be a source of shame to have a child no. out of wedlock. A child is a beautiful thing and it, it's fine. And obviously Hunter has engaged in all of these already well-known to the public other embarrassing things, the drug abuse, et cetera, which again, that's people all over America have marital issues and drug issues. This is something that everyone goes through, elite and non-elite alike, uh, or, can't, or capable, no people in their families who went through, et cetera. It doesn't need to be, it's not hidden, it's known to the public. Yeah. I don't, it's, it's like, it's known regardless, frankly, of whether Maureen Dowd writes about it in the New York Times or yeah. not. The idea that like, it's not gonna be known if it's not commented on, it's we're, like, we're so far past that. Hunter Biden's, behavior and what happened is known and it's not we're, they're not like papering over some I don't understand what what's the point of of, of treating this person and this individual child this way when it, it could just like you can just move on from 
from what happened and from the circumstances that led to this, compensate the person, acknowledge the child, and, and like, what, what is the importance of not, what is the point of not doing that? I don't yeah. understand. I really don't. I and Maureen Dowd, by the way, acknowledges this, the argument that the, the women of The View brought up, saying, you know, why are you making this about uh, the, Joe Biden? This is about Hunter. Mm -hmm. She writes, I have sympathy for Hunter going into a dark, bleak hole, as he called it. I have sympathy for a father coping with a son who is out of control and who may still be fragile. With Hunter, his father can seem paralyzed about the right thing to do. But the president can't defend Hunter on all, on all his other messes and draw the line at accepting one little girl. You can't punish her for something she had no choice about, but Biden should embrace the life Hunter brought into the world, even if he didn't consider her mother the quote-unquote dating type. And I, I, I think I got to agree with that. When children are born, you got to step up. Yeah. And if the father isn't willing to, if he's dealing with his own issues still, I can, I can understand that. But if you're going to be talking about how the, your honor as a Biden and the Biden family and family mm -hmm. is the most important thing, you know, it, it, it's, it's against type. It, it undermines your whole stated principle yeah. and again, to allow why? this for girl to be out in the world. For what point? It's not for, it's not for political gain. It's not, nothing is being gained. By, if, if by anything, handling would, it this way, if he anything, would be it's sure. advantaged by sure. embracing her. We would it's, all think right. it was a beautiful exactly. thing. Exactly. It's not even like, well, the right thing is this, but it's too hard to do because X, Y, and Z. It's too the optics are bad. That's not the case. Yeah. You can just do the right thing. I do wonder if the family that the girl comes from is part of why there's been this hesitation to embrace her. There is potential risk for embarrassment if there's anything going on there. I remember when Meghan Markle was marrying. Uh, Prince Harry, her father is complicated, and the press really used mm -hmm. his personal choices to malign her further. Apparently, um, uh, Miss Roberts, the the mother, is the daughter of a rural gunmaker um, and is uh, you know from a more conservative family. Again, this could be a positive selling point for the mm -hmm. Bidens, demonstrating that there's a kind of political diversity in their family that exists in so many American families. Um, so there's going to be more speculation uh, about that. But it is, at this point, when that, you've not had multiple New York Times stories published about this, if they go ahead forward and continue to refer to them, themselves as having only six grandchildren or their son as only having um, four children, I, it's, it's hard to, to imagine someone making those kinds of choices, knowing how a child is going to grow up and perceive that, and not mm -hmm. think negatively about the person who is willingly inflicting that sort of hurt, when it's just not necessary, when you could just tiptoe around it and avoid it. Yeah, for sure. The, the article contemplates a little girl growing up and realizing like her half-sister got married on the White House lawn, and knowing that she's abided and seeing all the press about how your grandfather is the president. I mean, it's one thing to be estranged from your family which happens to people, as uh, Alyssa Ferrer was saying, but it's another thing to be estranged from the most famous family in America, arguably, and for everyone to know, and to know that your family has resources and all the, the most privilege and power that exists in the world is to still make the choice not to want to connect with you just for the sake of the little girl. I, you know, I hope that someone from the Biden family chooses ultimately to reach out and that uh, ultimately, Hunter is able to be healthy and well and have a substantive relationship with all of his Maybe children. Biden's just from a you know an older generation. I mean, he served right in the Senate alongside um, Strom, Strom Thurmond. Thurmond, who 
had a had a, a child with uh, I think a servant of the family yep. when he was like a, in his a, teenage a black years, servant, a black of, the servant of the family in his teenage years. Yeah, and uh, you know has and, and that individual was not acknowledged until much yes, much, the, much 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 much. The segregationists declined to acknowledge yeah. his out of wedlock black child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a tough situation. It's a tough situation. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Governor Gavin Newsom said the Democrats should not appear on Fox News, saying it contributes to the mental health crisis. Here he is with former White House press secretary turned MSNBC host Jen Psaki. Let's watch. They're all the same. And what American News and Newsmax and, and what they're doing to divide this country to, you know, where illusion rules, not facts. Gosh. Do you occasionally turn on Fox no. time and see what happens no. just to see? Not occasionally. Um, every night. Every night. And do you think Democrats should still be appearing on Fox or should they not be appearing on uh, Fox? It contributes to the mental health crisis in the state. So on the basis of one's own personal <laughs> conditions, I would not recommend it. My staff is quite literally tried to have interventions with me about it. They say I'm too obsessed with it, but I need to understand it. You want to know what the other side thinks? I don't want to know what they think. I want to see the patterns and what you see are patterns that emerge. Newsom's criticism of Fox News and advice for fellow Democrats to steer clear was pre-taped with Saki in April, a couple months before he sat down for an interview with Fox News' Sean Hannity. Speculation rose that Newsom might make a run for president, but he has said he will not challenge President Biden, which, to be clear, is not the same thing as saying you're not going to run. Of course, Biden could step down. So I guess this is one of those cases where he's saying... It is bad. It's unhealthy. You shouldn't consume it. I'm an addict. I'm a Fox News addict. I can't help myself, but the, but the rest of you should, which is I, I always find obnoxious. Um, I mean, I, I, the whole idea is, I think, bad, right? There are people, there are people watching Fox who might be interested in what uh, a, a Democrat has to say. Like, if you, you, you think your pitch is so, is so weak, you could never get anyone slightly more interested in the policy agenda you have. Um, look, I give credit to the Democrats who do appear on Fox News. Amy Klobuchar does it. Um, uh, Buttigieg does it. Rokana does it. Uh, look, you, you Bernie can't, Sanders. Bernie Sanders has done it. Um, has, when was the last time Biden was on Fox News ever? I don't. I can't. I can't, I can't think of a time. I can't recall. Um, probably back when he was vice president. <laughs> um, look, you, you you just you shouldn't just speak to people who are already committed, especially, again, if you're trying to build a, like a winning electoral political coalition. Yeah. It just doesn't make a lot of sense, but whatever. One of the interesting moments is when Jin Saki sort of says, oh, you watch because you want to know what they think, and Newsom says, no, I don't want to know what they think. I want to know what the patterns are. It feels like we're in a place Maybe he didn't want right to see now. his ex-wife, but she's not on anymore. <laughs> Kimberly <laughs> Guilfoyle. Yeah. It seems like we're in a place in this country where... Even acknowledging that you're interested in what a Republican has to, what they think, not that you agree with it, but even understanding their arguments is seen as a kind of betrayal or evidence that you're on the dark side. It's like, mm -hmm. don't, you know, don't, don't look in the eye of the hypnotic snake. Like they, they think that there, there's a, it feels like a sort of insecurity or a weird political litmus test where everyone's afraid of being pegged as a secret 
conservative sympathizer. It's, it feels akin to me to the Putin puppet allegations and, well, you're just a Trumpist if you don't want to vote for Biden or if you're critical of him in any way. And it feels very toxic to me that you can't, in an interview between two liberals, a former Biden administration and a Democratic governor, admit to saying that it is useful to you to understand what Republicans mm -hmm. think. Not to agree with it, not to sympathize with it, but the act of understanding felt too intimate in that clip with Newsom for him to acknowledge. So he had to back it off and say, well, I just want to know what pa their patterns are. Well, and he was also kind of suggesting that watching Fox or One America or Newsmax is, uh, is, uh, is like it's bad, it's unhealthy because, I, I guess, because he's saying it's so radicalizing or something like that or depressing or just working your mental angry making. But I mean, that, I, I think that's such a, I, I think that is, I think it's fair to accuse the media in general of sometimes giving a warped perspective of issues or making people too angry or too fearful because that drives engagement and we're probably all guilty of that at various times. But you can't, I mean, they did that, you know, CNN had a, had a COVID death tracker for forever. It has, you know, dramatizes all sorts of harms to all sorts of people. Um, a more general advice that some, you know, turn off your TV or put down social media and like, th things aren't as apocalyptically bad as the media can portray them. I, I think that's fine, but that's not a, that's not really a, that's not a, I don't think that's a Fox thing. Well, look, I, I think, else. yeah, I think he was largely joking about that because he's, he's clearly addicted to watching Fox. He's, he's, which is a good thing, by the way, that he shouldn't be apologizing for. I think it's good for him to understand what the, uh, what people who are ide ideologically diverse think about. But, you know, I actually, I empathize with the idea that watching too much news or watching people who, you know, you're not politically aligned with can be mm -hmm. aggravating. I mean, you find yourself in, you don't find yourself in mental arguments or even out loud arguments with the television sometimes and people are Do saying I? things that you dramatically yeah, disagree with. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, so like, from that, that's the most relatable part of that clip to me. Okay, yeah, you watch people you don't agree with, it makes you mad, turn it off, touch grass, find your inner peace, yeah. that's fine. But I, Although I have to say, because we, since we do this for three hours every day, my like, in my off time, I have no, I have so much less interest in, right, getting fired up or you know wanting to debate or like I don't want to talk politics anymore. I, I we do it all fight. day. It's exhausting. I, I don't want to fight. And when people are, you know, you go to into, you, you know, you go with your friends, family, or whatnot, and they all want to know what you think about everything, it can be it, I'm off exhausting. the clock. Exactly. Stop. Am I getting paid for this coverage? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, 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 I do think that there, this is evidence of some like broader um, toxic issue that's going on with Dem Democrats, which is going to make it very difficult for them to grow the base. Um, they've sure. been relying on this kind of demographics as destiny argument for a long time, presuming that changing um, uh, demographic realities are going to benefit Democrats, but the increase in uh, Hispanic voters has not yielded the dividends that they once thought because Republicans have been doing very effective outreach, uh, and Democrats haven't quite figured out how to change up the playbook outside of um, their version of identity politics. Of course, there's conservative kind of white identity politics that we saw on display with uh, the interview with uh, Tuberville uh, that we talked about in a different segment. But everyone just clinging to those kinds of arguments without making mm -hmm. populist economic arguments or anti-war arguments or what have you, um, I don't think it's going to move the needle very far. Do you think that any of these press uh, 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 junkets that uh, Newsom is going on are indicative of, of the likelihood of him wanting to position himself to run for president? I think he will run for president someday. 
I don't think he's going to get into the 2024 race. Um, I don't think he's going to challenge Biden. I think he's he's not because he's not running. Again, if you're challenging Biden because the it's establishment not, it's not is challenging Biden, he said he's not going to challenge Biden. The question is, is Biden going to step down? Is Biden going to decline Under no to run? circumstances. No, 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 no. He won't. No. It's going to be Biden. It feels to me it's at the very Biden. least that Gavin Newsom is waiting in anticipation of that, whether or not it's because he thinks there's going to be a medical issue that precludes Biden from running, a cognitive issue that precludes Biden from running. I mean, We're still a long way away from an election. I, I can't, obviously, I can't predict if some catastrophic medical thing were to happen to Joe Biden, then yes, I think he might make a go of it. But I don't think Biden is going to step aside as long as he's, unless he's in a coma. I mean, there have been... Uh, no stories one, over the last no couple of days. No one gives up power, ever. But, ever. I, I, I agree with you, but that's literally not what I'm saying. I'm well. saying there's going to be something that makes him step down. And, and there's these stories that happened over the last couple of days. The uh, British royals were upset with him because he was violating protocol as he was wandering around at... at I don't know if they're at Buckingham Palace or wherever they were with the, the changing of the guard in, in that ceremony. There was a whole news cycle over the 4th of July about some people thought he looked really good at the beach. Some people thought he looked stiff and very old at the beach. Some people thought his shorts were too short. I mean, there were, it, there are an increasing number of videos, I would say, where he does look like a different kind of a guy than he did even four years ago. Um, and... Whether or not there are others like Gavin Newsom who are waiting in the wings, anticipating that there might be something that precludes him from running or that have some inside knowledge that things are not as mm -hmm. safe for him health-wise as they're representing. I, I, I don't think, think it's, it's nothing that someone like Gavin Newsom... Gavin Newsom is making choices to me that are indicating that he has a belief that there's an opportunity for him. Whether or not that's true, he has that belief. And I don't think it's an accident that... Um, the governor of the most economically significant state in the country uh, is, po is positioning himself this way. Hmm. Well, we'll have to see. More rising right after this. MSNBC is facing ridicule online after a year-old opinion piece on, quote, fascist fitness groups resurfaced, titled Why the Far Right is Really Into Home Fitness, White Supremacist's Latest Scheme to Valorize Violence and Hypermasculinity Has Gone Digital. The article draws explicit connections between white supremacy and fascism and extreme workout culture. Yesterday, the piece made the rounds online after Elon Musk's tweet responded to it, saying, quote, MSNBC thinks you're a Nazi if you work out. L-M-A-O-O-O-O-O-O-O. <laughs> uh, I remember this piece the first time it made the rounds. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not quite sure why it's doing that again. But well, I yes, think it's, it's because we were ridiculous... having this conversation about... Well, I think uh, it's because they retweeted it. But... but RFK Jr., why do they retweet it? We're having a whole like month-long discourse about RFK Jr.'s uh, thirst trap gym picks and whether or not there's some relationship between your personal fitness and health to your ability to lead. Uh, people have been doing a lot of those side-by-side -side memes of... Uh, you know, Joe Rogan and RFK Jr. with people that they disagree with politically and who they see as mm -hmm. also less physically attractive or fit, saying, which way west, young man? <laughs> who would you prefer to have leadership? So there is a linking of people in this community of mm -hmm. kind of 
mental fitness um, and respect and public stature to physical fitness. That is yeah. definitely thing that's happening. But physical fitness is good and being healthy is good and getting exercise is good and there's no reason to stigmatize these things. Um, I'm sure there are very left-wing progressive people who work out a lot too and normally mainstream people and people of all political stripes and um, yeah, it's kind of silly. So I don't think that the article um, stigmatizes working out. It's not saying that it, working out is bad simply because people in a, let's say, conservative Are or Nazi... Are you crushing it at the gym? You might be a right-wing <laughs> na no. nationalist. I, I don't think that that is, what the, in all fairness, mm -hmm. the argument that the article is making. It's asking why, not whether or not the trend itself is bad, but what it means for a particular community right. to have identified itself with a particular non-political thing a like fitness. Here's the question. Is it even a trend? I mean, certainly there's, uh, there's like again, like, uh, like Andrew Tate-type people, right, yeah. who are... Who who, you know, extol the virtues of their physical fitness, come from the fighting where he works, at, that's part of his, you know, uh, his uh, presentation to young men that they should get on board his philosophy and his movement. Mm -hmm. Part of it is, you know, doing a lot of push-ups and that kind of thing. Um, there's, uh, there's that what, Bronze Age pervert figure, do you know that person? BAP? Bronze Age, no. Uh, is a Twitter personality that talks a lot about uh, traditional masculinity, and I mean, it's, but he feuds with the Christian right. I mean, there it's all these individual personalities because he, I don't know, I'm not even gonna get into it. But, <laughs> but again, these are just a couple individuals who like hold right wing or right wing adjacent or whatever you want to call them views, and who are also into working out and try to connect the two. But I don't know that there's. I don't know that there's actually a movement out there. Well, the article, I don't know what the, the trend article is. tracks it a little bit. It looks at a bunch of um, kind of By online. Finding three people on Twitter. No, it looks at a number of online groups that have this um, relationship. Not just saying we, we love fitness, and then also we happen to be Nazis or whatever. Um, it right. The article says the intersection of extremism and fitness leans into a shared obsession with the male body, training, masculinity, testosterone, strength, and competition. Physical fitness training, especially in combat sports, appeals to the far right for many reasons. Fighters are trained to accept significant physical pain, to be warriors, and to embrace messaging around solidarity, heroism, and brotherhood. It's championed as a tool to fight the coming race war and the street battles that will precede it. Recruits are encouraged to link individual moral virtues, such as willpower, decisiveness, courage, with desired collective traits, such as virility and manliness. But aren't, like, red states, on average, more unhealthy than blue states or something? Or there's more obesity? Well, I think that, that kind of most thing? people in red states are not not Nazis. We're talking about a very small um, community here, I should hope. Like a really um, small, again, yeah, but five people on Twitter. You don't think that they're, so there was a, a piece Real that small. came out uh, today or yesterday uh, about uh, broadly a crisis of masculinity, which I think has been acknowledged across the political spectrum. People like Jordan Peterson are making an effort to help young men who feel alienated, I would argue, for largely economic reasons mm -hmm. and have not met the touchstones that people traditionally met in terms of owning a house or being able to afford a car and children and a wife and all of those kinds of things, helping them to f feel less unmoored, um, teaching them how to clean their rooms and how to eat a certain diet. He advocates for an all-meat diet, which is mm -hmm. how to eat a certain diet and how to improve your life, right? That's a more kind of conservative-leaning version of it. Obviously, there's a lot of health and wellness stuff on the left as well. Everybody loves physical fitness. You know, that's not partisan mm -hmm. in the least. But I, I do think there's obviously efforts to reach out to the disaffected by offering a plan for them to improve their life 
including through personal fitness, especially for like incels, sure. people who feel alienated from relationships, perhaps because of how they look or they, they're not just doing well with women or whoever they're attracted to, you know, obviously reasonable advice is like work out, become conventionally attractive, whatever. So I, I don't know if it's necessarily mm -hmm. an, an own to point out that that's a reality in the culture. The question is, if there is something sure. particularly pernicious about this, I don't know. I mean, people are young men and people in general, you know, are, are living at home for too long. That hurts your dating possibilities, um, are not, you know, are not getting jobs and are just reliant on their parents. Not having a job really hurts you. I, I think the over uh, credentialism a little bit in our society has in some ways hurt young men more than women. I mean, I mean we're talking gross generalizations and, and abstractions and everything, but, you know, it'd be, Women are are outpacing men in in on you know in the number of people enrolling in college, for instance, because I, I think um, I mean they women seem to be thriving again. Can find plenty of counterexamples, but on net seem to be doing better at that kind of uh, at, at call. And when when as education becomes more and more incumbent before you can get a job, it's oh you have to get a now you have to get a degree now you have to get another degree. It, you know delaying that kind of thing. Um, it seems like men on average are, are not well served by that or don't stick with it or you know, don't want to go all the way through it. And that has not been a good trend. Um, we talk a lot about like the loneliness, obviously, of men and boys. Although as far as I can tell from the data on social media, the usage is much uh, more punishing yeah, look, for women than for men. I, I have a lot of empathy for people's feelings of isolation and loneliness. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think the reason that sometimes we focus more on men in that context rather than women is not because women are not also feeling isolated and lonely, but because there are expressions of that angst that sometimes are disproportionately represented among men. So whenever there's a mass shooting, mm -hmm. we're talking about it. And statistically, I'm not saying because women are superior or anything, but statistically, women are not doing those kinds of things that are the less, they're just suffering in silence, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, instead of taking it out on, on other people. And I do think the question of like, why is there this different response to isolation and loneliness is an interesting one. And the argument that many people who are more left-leaning make is that toxic masculinity or traditional patriarchal viewpoints or whatever you want to call it, it hurts men. Because it tells men you have to be a provider, you have to be the bread earner, you have to be this big tough guy, um, or otherwise you don't have any intrinsic personal worth. And also, you're not allowed to be intimate and share your feelings with your friends. Men aren't allowed to cry on each other's shoulder without being accused of being gay and, and, and all of these sorts of things that that make isolation actually more cute for men. And some, sometimes, you know, feminists, people who want more gender equality, they're making the case that holding on to some of those traditional values is making your lot worse in life. And now some of these people are saying the opposite, that you can use this to your advantage. You know, if you're feeling like you're not meeting traditional male standards, well, just turn that around. Become an MMA fighter. You know, eat red meat, like Jordan Peterson says. You know, um, neg women at the club. You know, do these things to assert your dominance and control. And I think that's an ongoing battle about what the best way to save Like All the is. things you were describing have sort of lessened as social pressure. Like, there's sure. less pressure to be the tough guy or the provider there's or not less. share your emotions. Sure. I mean, there's a lot less today than in the 1950s? Sure, there's less. Like, so much less. But there's still quite a bit. 
okay, but to, to the extent that conversation seems to suggest, and I'm not sure this is actually the case, but that people are more lonely or more mentally unhealthy. It makes me wonder, is that actually true? Do we just actually measure and survey uh, people's discomfort? Are people much more ready to admit that they have a problem or that they are unhappy or that things are not right, so much more so than they would have 50 years ago or 100 years ago where no one would be caught, you know, no man alive would be caught dead admitting that everything is not you know, copacetic in their lives? That's what I wonder. I, I don't if think we you can look at our. Fatalistic. I, I don't think that the problem that men are experiencing and that a lot of people are experiencing is because like there's just too much therapy culture and we're too in touch. I'm not saying this is how you're. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm doing a maximalist version of your argument. Mm -hmm. Too much in touch with our feelings. I think there's a massive opioid epidemic. I think there's a housing crisis. I think the price of the cost of housing has gone up 500% in the last 20 years. I think the price of education has also risen exponentially along with the requirement to get an education, mm -hmm. something that is not only affecting men in these ways as they graduate in lower rates, but student debt is overwhelmingly concentrated among lower income people and people who have historically not been allowed to go to college, specifically black and brown Americans who have many times the amount of student debt as other people. And that all of these things are toxic and weighing in on societies. People who are very online know that in like the black media space, these like gender wars are the subject of every single podcast in the world. Every single like media conversation is, okay, but what if the woman earns more than the man? And what is your obligation in the home if the man isn't doing X, Y, and Z? And it's because the gender gaps that we're describing here are even more pronounced in the black community where women are out graduating men like three to one from college. Okay. So like, I'm very familiar with this, but I, I just, we're also seeing very different discourses in that community than what's in the white community. It's not the same like incel MMA fighter stuff. It's, it's, not, it's not better or worse, but it's presenting in different kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. And I see the toxicity affecting people in their relationships and in their personal lives in all kinds of ways. And so I, I am really interested in this. I do think it's, it's, it's silly to say that fitness is bad just because conservatives are doing it. And I don't think that's what this argu argu article argues, but it is worth having a conversation about what purpose the fitness movement is serving in various communities. Is it recruiting people to do things that are actually benefiting them their lives and creating social cohesion? Sometimes. Is it recruiting people to a far right Nazi ideology? Sometimes. And I think you can disaggregate those things and not blame fitness for the, the underlying stuff there. Mm. All right, well, you tell us in the comments uh, how you feel about these trends, <laughs> and we'll have more rising right after this. The select subcommittee is undergoing a hearing as we speak on what they call investigating the proximal origin of a cover-up. We will react to that hearing with molecular biologist Alina Chan and investigative reporter Jimmy Tobias tomorrow. But until then, U.S. Right to Know Emily Kopp, uh, Emily Kopp of the U.S. Right to Know organization, she's testifying on the Hill today, and she tweeted about a report released by this same committee, some major revolution, uh, revelations here in that report on efforts to suppress the lab leak theory, which include new Slack messages, making it clear that the intent of the infamous proximal, proximal origin paper was expressly political. Specifically, the idea was to downplay the accidental release theory. Um, and Emily Kopp suggests here it was actually about appeasing, in fact, the Chinese. Um, so there are Slack messages in this report mm. that's from this Christian Anderson uh, figure who's, you know, this is, this is the paper 
that Fauci kind of pushed for, hinted that he'd really like someone mm -hmm. to write a paper about how oh, natural origin is really the more likely mm -hmm. explanation. Mm -hmm. Christian Anderson was, uh, was part of that. And, um, and so this is a quote from him. Um, I, I hate when politics is injected into science, but it is impossible not to, given the circumstances. Um, this other scientist, Dr. Rambo, says um, that given the SHIT that show that would happen if anyone seriously accused the Chinese of even accidental release, mm. my feeling is we should say that given there is no evidence of a specifically engineered virus, we cannot possibly distinguish between natural evolution and escape. So we're content with ascribing it to a natural process. Oh, it's That's pretty damning. That's like we don't want to we don't want to accuse the Chinese like they would if we said they did it accidentally they would freak out. So. And, and we're not going to say that it was deliberately engineered and released. So we'll just say short of that, that's pretty bad. That sheds some interesting light on the way that the, the wet market, despite it implicating more Chinese cultural practices than a lab leak theory, was the one that was characterized as the more pro-China argument. And this sheds light on why that might be the case. Remember, the posture at the time is the mainstream pushing natural origin, Donald Trump talking about a China virus, this effort to, perhaps it seems now from that Slack thread, minimize the direct accusations going against China for political mm -hmm. reasons, wanting to de-escalate any tensions that might emerge either out of a sincere effort not to antagonize a world power or because it also means um, being kind of anti-Trump in the way that he was choosing to address this issue. That that makes it a lot easier to understand how we could have ended up in a situation where lab leak theory was perceived to be the more xenophobic, sinophobic explanation as opposed to right. Because that was going to make the Chinese government mad. Exactly. Uh, Emily also highlights in this report um, another doctor, Ron Fauciere, who was also involved in proximal origin. Um, quote, so this is another quote from this person. Um, this manuscript would be much stronger if it focused on the likelihood of the first two scenarios as compared to intentional or accidental release. But also limit the chance of new biosafety discussion that would unnecessarily obstruct future attempts of virus culturing for research and diagnostic purposes. So they're explicitly saying they want to head off um, uh, calls for new biosafety regulation. That's wild. I mean, I, I'm, I am more open than I think you are to the idea that there can be potentially a safe way to do gain-of-function research. I would need to know a lot more about the science and safety protocols, the pros and the cons, the benefits of the research, and the risk of leak to come to a determination about whether or not I think that we should just fundamentally not do gain-of-function research. But the idea that in the, in the face of a tragedy, mm -hmm. the likes of COVID, you wouldn't be eager for there to be as many safety protocols and effect as possible for your own sake as a researcher, as well as for the global community's sake, is kind of perverse. Yeah. It just, it, it really seems like the more we learn about the timeline for, for Fauci and Collins and, and all the, and, 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 you know, happening earlier than we thought there, you know, as soon as there is any evidence, there's a pandemic, they're like, Okay, how did this arise? What are the you know? Let's put the brain trust together yeah. and see if we can come up with a with a with an explanation that does not impugn 
our yeah, scientific The argument should be if, if you want to continue gain of function research, you should be pushing aggressively for more safety, for safety. protocols and making the argument that it Let's can do be it done in safely. Antarctica. Do it exactly. <laughs> exactly. So do it in the space station. <laughs> Elon. Get Elon. On the phone. <laughs> or the yeah. deep under well. Yeah. Maybe not under the sea. Uh, can, can you tell me a little bit more about who it is exactly that's on those email threads? Help me understand how senior perhaps yeah. um, some of the people who are making those statements well, are. These are people who are part of a group of scientists who are, you know, convened to weigh in mm -hmm. to contribute their expertise for this proximal origins declaration, which set the tone then for media coverage, for ensuing mm -hmm. media coverage and you know legislative like, oh well, you know, it could have been. You, you weren't crazy to wonder if it was a lab leak or whatever, but. The scientists looked at it, and here's their paper saying mm, it's prox. It's it's and this group was assembled by who exactly? Well, was that's it what we're trying to get to the bottom of. But now we we know that there were calls between Fauci, Francis Collins, and others too. So we're trying to assess how much it was Fauci saying. Do you think this was you know natural origin? And if so, would you write a paper about it? And and pushing. Um, I, I don't remember if it was Anderson or one of the others to to do that. Even they they said initially said, you know, I would not be inclined to weigh in. And then Fauci's like, are you sure? Yeah. And, and that's the, again, no one's, I'm, no one's alleging like criminal action here, right. but that it was, uh, that there was an agenda being set by Fauci and others to steer the conversation, um, at least when it was ambiguous, when it was more ambiguous than, <laughs> frankly, than I think it is now, again, given unconfirmed, but substantial accusations made about um, uh, illnesses among the implicated scientists, yeah. um, you know, prior to the uh, the wet market. How, have like we that. heard much from China? Are they also having no. an internal conversation? Well, maybe. If I, um, I mean, there's diplomatic missions that yeah. are ongoing. There's obviously a entangled scientific relationship between the U.S. and some of these Chinese labs. I mean, what do we know if it's just a presumed? natural origin and not a lot of discourse in China about, or, or is there an ongoing investigation there in the way that there is Well, we don't know. Here? I, I presume they've investigated it. If it was, if those, um, if those scientists did get sick, they probably know. So I, well, I, I ben, think- Ben Wu came out saying that he didn't, he wasn't grounds sure. patient zero. Sure. Do what you will with that. Um, but so there, there obviously are people who are able and willing to speak, and I would imagine that there has to be it some public statement that indicates that there was an effort to get to the bottom of it, what, how, whatever you think about how credible it, it is. It is likely that the Chinese authorities know way more than we do um, and are just not saying, not sharing, because it makes them look bad. That's the theory. I mean, it's, it's, it's a compelling theory. It just seems like such shared responsibility. I mean, with these jointly funded, you know, these U.S. funded they labs down, and Chinese they scientists. They took and down, there was, um, I, I don't remember quite what the relevance of it was, but they, there was a publicly available um, genetic profile of, uh, of, of COVID-like diseases that they had available, that they, they took that down immediately as the bit. Like there, it's a, it's a secretive, I mean, I mean, and again, I'm not, it's, I'm not saying this in like a xenophobic way. Our own, our own uh, health agencies have also been extremely reluctant to admit that they might be at fault here. No, that's what I'm saying, that I, I almost feel like it's a mutual, it's so, it's so mutually assured destruction 
that that I mean that's an argument for why for both, why they're both, both states have are happy both to both states have incentive to keep it ambiguous and say I mean now they have to say that well it might have come from a lab but it might have come from wet market might have you know it is interesting I mean Ryan from Grimm, a shooting star who knows Ryan Grimm has been live watching these these hearings we've been catching it between you know filming here as well and he was remarking on how interesting it is that it's completely split among bipartisan on partisan lines mm -hmm. with all the Democrats arguing in favor of natural origin and all of the conservatives arguing in favor of uh, lab leak and how this is not an intrinsically political issue and it shouldn't it pan out that all. way and if 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 there is a state-based investment and not having U.S. liability, right? If there's a kind of national investment and, and they're not being U.S. liability, the same way there is potentially in China, it is still curious why that is falling along partisan lines. Like, what did the Democrats know about wanting to avoid liability that Republicans don't know or not care about? Is it just the Democrats more interested in maintaining the integrity of the organization and having a, an NIH or a CDC versus sure. Republicans? Because I, I, I suspect that the average Republican doesn't want there to just not be a National Institute of Health and cancer research. And, you know, RFK Jr. is so popular among a lot of different people of a lot of different political backgrounds because he's arguing that we need to have more testing for vaccines, not get rid of the agencies yeah. that would be able to implement those that kind of testing. So it's just a really interesting dynamic. That's I mean, I, I think the Republicans have rallied around the lab leak theory because, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a Gotcha. Of a, I mean, of turnaround is fair play sure. to the mainstream media sure. demonizing anyone who thought it was plausible as a kind of conspiracy theorist, as they did to Tom Cotton and anyone on the right who said that. So maybe there's an overinvestment For, in, in Jeffrey that idea. Sachs, they, yeah. they, they pilloried. He was yeah. heading up Lancet's investigation, and he said, "Well, let's look into lab leak." Everybody freaked out because he was senior and respectable mm -hmm. and had a medical journal and open to lab leak before a lot of other people were. Thomas Frank, I did an interview with him in the early days where he was getting a lot of pushback for being, you know, it, it, it was a mess. And yeah. I, I definitely appreciate people who were still bristling I've just, about that. I've just had to include, based on the description of the research they're doing, the, the conditions we know, the, the, the not, uh, the substandard conditions in the lab, the fact that the, um, that the, Intermediate animal has not been found in the wild, even though it was for uh, for SARS. Those things all together not make a coon me dog really, <laughs> really, really till leaning heavily toward yeah. um, toward uh, toward the lab leak. But of course, we don't know for sure. We will uh, bring you more on that hearing uh, with an expert tomorrow. And on tomorrow on Rising, uh, yes, we will have the people we mentioned on our show. It will be great. We hope that you tune in and you can listen to us in all sorts of places. Why don't you tell the audience where those places are? Hey, Rob, you're stepping on my lines here. <laughs> Make sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.